episode 338, Ideas to Meet Rural Healthcare's Tough Challenges. Today, I speak with Nikki King, DHA. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. My overarching thought throughout a lot of this interview was that improving rural health will take everyone remembering to not let perfect be the enemy of the good. If I live in rural America, there's no subspecialists. Forget about even seeing a garden variety kind of specialist. I might have to drive hours to even get to a PCP. There are NPs, nurse practitioners, in a lot of these remote communities, but everybody's fighting over whether to let them practice independently, even in places where there's zero PCPs for hundreds of miles, effectively leaving everyone in the vicinity with basically zero access to any care. Or here's another issue. Maternal mortality in this country is not only heartbreaking, a mother dying in what should be a precious moment. It's also embarrassing as an industrialized nation to be so far in last place. I don't know this for a fact, really, but women who have to drive literally hours to see a provider during their pregnancy or God forbid they go into labor unexpectedly. Is that a factor in our horrific maternal mortality rates. Consider that in Canada, which has, by the way, substantially better maternal mortality rates than the USA, PCPs and NPs deliver babies in low-risk pregnancies, even in areas that have access to OBGYNs, unlike a lot of rural America. When do we start wondering if we're letting perfect be the enemy of the good? When do we start considering if no access to care is worse than some access, even if the some access is not with perhaps the ideal type of provider? These are not questions with easy answers, so we need data. We need to think in shades of gray, not in binary terms where good and bad have static definitions unaltered by wildly different circumstances. That said, one way to potentially make many parties happy might be to do something like, I don't know, the NUCA system has done for Native Americans in rural Alaska. Listen to episode 312 for more info on that. It's pretty cool. But let's just back up a sec with a little situation analysis. The thing with rural hospitals closing, and they are surely running in the red and closing, is the very pernicious cycle that develops. A hospital closing is kind of a bellwether for a community caught in a downward spiral in ways I did not realize until my conversation with Nikki King today. The main industry shuts its doors. Maybe coal, or I grew up in a steel town when they were closing all the factories down. That was a Billy Joel quote there, and I spent a few years as a kid in the very same Allentown that song is about. Community trauma is no joke. Oh, and also, now there's no commercial lives. So say the hospital in that town isn't prepared for this new pair mix reality, and it closes. Then maybe a few hundred doctors and nurses move away along with their spending habits, so other jobs go away. Then the more affluent senior citizens don't move back to their hometown to retire because who wants to live in a town with no hospital? Also, young families who have a choice might choose to go elsewhere. Former population centers start to disperse, and now there's not even a population big enough to support a hospital, even if one would decide to go there. And when that hospital goes, so does its maternity department, and likely even... OBGYN practices. Forget about a laborist. You then will have local PCPs leave town because, right, a PCP connected to a hospital can make twice as much as an indie. 
reference the huge number of PCPs in this country who are employed by a health system. Most of these employed PCPs will not work in rural communities where their employer health system has no facilities to refer to. There's no jobs there for an employed physician. Obviously, no specialists can stay in business in this environment either. Things go from bad to worse. Child abuse rises and multi-generational diseases of despair start to set in. And there's no healthcare to treat these diseases or prevent them. Things go from bad to worse to even more worse. Today, I'm honored and thrilled to talk with Nikki King, DHA, who offers up three community-centric ideas around solving the crisis of access that people in rural communities face. In short, these ideas include, number one, freestanding ERs. And by freestanding ERs, I mean ERs that have the financial discipline to not take advantage of the communities they claim to serve, that is. <laughs> Idea two, telehealth that recognizes broadband issues, which is possible, and Nikki King explains. Number three, expanding nurse practitioner rights and maybe even the scope of PCP practices to, for example, include maternity care for low-risk pregnancies in areas that have zero or very minimal access to healthcare otherwise. Here's the shorter-than-short version. Perfect can't be the enemy of the good when we're talking about some of these communities that have no health care options. Nikki King grew up in Kentucky in the coal fields of central Appalachia. She managed a behavioral health and addictions unit at a critical access hospital and also worked in biostatistics. She is on the board of directors of the Indiana Rural Health Association and has developed policies as a member of the National Rural Health Association, among a whole list of other achievements. Nikki is innovative and compassionate, and she understands the culture of those she serves. She talks about a few things that she worked on during the pandemic that are truly inspirational. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Nikki King, DHA, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having me. How dire is the situation about hospitals in rural America? I want to say that it's roughly 50% of rural hospitals right now are running in the red. There's been, I want to say, 200 rural hospitals close over the last 10 to 15 years, it's very bad. Let's talk about the potential solutions here. I know that freestanding ERs, emergency rooms, is something that you've mentioned before as a potential solution. What are we talking about when we say that a freestanding ER might be a solution to helping rural communities get healthcare? Freestanding ERs are a model that has been thrown around as a way to replace rural hospitals who close. The general model for that, have a full service emergency room with a helicopter pad and maybe one or two inpatient beds that can be used if you're waiting for a transfer. If you're in a rural community that has no access to healthcare after hours, I think that that would be viable. A real big con with that model, though, is it really flies in the face of everything that we've tried to accomplish with value-based care. You know, right now, one of the major ills of the healthcare system is how much primary care has taken place in the emergency room. When that happens, A, it's much more expensive care than it should have been in the primary care office. It's arguably not as good care. So, for example, I can think of very few emergency room physicians that say that they are very well trained to deal with mental health crises. Yet that's the vast majority of people's first access point into the mental health care system because they don't really have access to a regular therapist or understanding that they should have that. So when you look at that model, now the ER is probably going to be the biggest provider of healthcare services. And obviously the impact is that people aren't getting colonoscopies or other regular screenings, et cetera. Right. You know, like their blood pressure is not getting checked until they have a heart attack. Now, 
the, the thing I don't want anybody to forget that those freestanding ERs, that whole model has been definitely exploited. And I use that word deliberately by some of the private equity firms that invested heavily in the only game in town, the one freestanding ER that if you had an emergency, you had to go to and then just sued everybody who went there. They were just charging whatever to vulnerable patient populations who had no other choice to go there. Right. Yeah. So potential solutions for rural health access. One of them is freestanding ERs. Number two, telehealth has been proposed as a way to help with this lack of access and the lack of providers that are in the, these rural areas. There's a few proposals I know that are on the table relative to telehealth in rural areas. Do you have any insight into, you know, like, what are they? Telehealth was almost universally not reimbursed in the state of Indiana prior to COVID. And it's been almost universally reimbursed since COVID. And we've had really improved outcomes from my standpoint. We've been able to really engage a patient population that we wouldn't have been able to keep engaged during COVID, but honestly, probably would have never been able to get to in the first place had the telehealth rules not changed. I'll be interested to see how that happens. I believe where the state of Indiana left off is uh, we're going to start looking into it and really trying to track outcomes and see if this is worthwhile and if the quality outcomes stack up to telehealth. So I do know that those are some of the things that have been on the table. One of the knocks on telehealth, which is frequently cited, is that it can further exacerbate disparities in care, especially in rural communities because of the lack of access to broadband. Right. Is that something that with the patients in your communities or the ones that you see, how many of them have an issue with broadband? Oh, just a lot of them. There's tons of communities that have really, really unreliable internet access. Both in Indiana and Kentucky, there are population centers that exist where the only access are extremely expensive satellite-based plans that are just unaffordable, as well as having access even to a computer is not guaranteed. What I have seen step into the gap there and help a little bit is disposable cell phones that have data plans. So those have been really helpful for us during the pandemic, you know, burner phones or whatever, the uh, go out to Kroger, buy a $30 prepaid phone with a data plan, and they're able to use their data minutes for for telehealth. So we've had some success with that. So when you're talking about the success of, of telehealth in your community, like you're not talking about the video chat. You're talking about like being able to audio talk with somebody. Both. But oh, those are video chats. So like you can buy prepaid cell phones now that have data for video chatting. Oh, okay. That has been helpful. But, you know, we have individuals who are just never going to be able to do that, <laughs> you know, from a technological standpoint. It requires a certain level of savvy that they're, it's just unrealistic to think. You know, I mean, if you've got a, you know, 93-year-old lady who's living out in Laurel, Indiana, her ability to access a, a cell phone with a data plan and figure out how to download an app and, you know, use it for telehealth is not great. <laughs> so it, it sounds like what you're doing, though, is it a local health system that has some sort of value-based care going on, reimbursement going on. It's actually buying the burner phones and handing them out to patients. Like, what do these programs look like? I'm going to be honest with you. I bought them myself. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, back at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know what the future was going to look like. And we didn't really have funding or anything like that to do that. So I just went out and I just bought a huge crate of burner phones and was handing them out to patients. And we had a we had some success with that. They're 
surprisingly affordable for what you get. So you personally, like you didn't even have a grant. You just went out and bought burner phones. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was kind of five alarm panic, especially in Indiana because it went, COVID went from a rumor to overflowing the hospitals in a week. If policymakers and administrators were as innovative and able to snap into action as fast as you, we'd likely been in a lot better shape. I salute you. I mean, I had no idea what to do, you know, so we all went to quarantine. Of course, nobody had ever been in quarantine. What does that mean? And so I just panicked the day before we went into quarantine and sent everybody home with a burner phone. Wow. But subsequently, now they have a burner phone and you actually know what their phone number is (laughs) because you bought it. So (laughs) then you were able to have reimbursable telehealth calls subsequently for people who would have been just completely alone, stuck in their home by themselves had you not done that. And again, you know, I especially worry about a lot of our senior patients who live at home or both of them are senior, you know, if they get sick, are they going to be able to get to the doctor or what if they need groceries? So were you actually setting up telehealth appointments and whatnot with rural patients or was it more like, okay, if you need help, just give me a call. And then basically you were your own 24-7 call center. Yeah, actually, we were we were setting up appointments at the time. Again, pure panic. We had no idea if it was actually going to be paid or not. We just scheduled telehealth appointments the same as, you know, we would normal appointments and then just indicated that they were telehealth. And we just hoped and prayed that that worked out. And it actually did. So. So we've come up with two potential solutions for rural health access. One of them is freestanding ERs, which have the financial discipline to not take advantage of the community that they are in, number one. Number two, telehealth, in particular, telehealth opportunities that recognize the fact that there's broadband issues. I'm going to assume, though, unless there's another, you know, Nikki King out there who takes it upon herself to spend her... <sighs> own money on her patients, that it probably would take more of a value-based reimbursement environment, which is something that you also mentioned at the top of this conversation, to inspire the health system to do this instead of a very concerned provider. Would you agree? Absolutely. So another possibility that you have talked about besides the freestanding ER and the telehealth is to expand nurse practitioner rights. So expanding NP rights. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? This is a hot potato in the healthcare world, you know, a lot of strong feelings about it on both sides of the aisle. But I think that approaching it from purely a data-based standpoint, what we know is that we've not really seen any significant changes in health care outcomes for communities that have nurse practitioners who practice independently. In fact, that model has been widely utilized in the frontier states where they have a very low per mile population and even lower number of doctors serving large areas, utilizing APRNs to the top of their license and really empowering them to be independent providers has increased outcomes as you would expect it to for providing an area that didn't have access to service with access to service. And the truth of the matter is, with the landscape being the way it is, the number of residencies for physicians each year is not increasing, but the population of the United States is increasing. And when you look at the places that it's increasing, it's increasing in rural areas. And we know that based off research, Physicians are most likely to practice within 40 miles where they completed residencies, and the vast majority of residencies are in urban communities. So you have these doctors who might have started out in a rural community with grand ambitions to go back home, but, you know, they get out, they do the residency, they get married, their kids are in school in this urban community, they don't really feel like leaving. And so they just stay there. And of course, the demand's there and the pay is there and the quality of life is there. There's not a ton to entice them back to their home community other than charitable spirit. And so 
this creates an issue where we're going to have a huge bottleneck on the number of available physicians and how far we can stretch them in the future, particularly as the silver tsunami hits with the baby boomers who are aging into a high acuity age range where they're going to need much more intensive services. When you look at how do we fill that gap, disproportionately, that gap has been filled by nurse practitioners who migrate and gravitate to rural communities. A, I think it's because of the people who choose to be nurse practitioners and the fact that they can often complete their schooling a lot faster and locally. So it doesn't really make it as hard for them to move after they've completed their training. But also because I think a lot of them are attracted to the fact that they can practice more independently and practice at the top of their license. So, like I said, you know, I know that there's a lot of feelings on both sides about which providers are the best or worst or who's got the strongest skill set in one thing or another. But the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of rural communities are going to be in the position where they have a nurse practitioner or no doctor at all. And I don't think anybody out there thinks that no doctor is better than a nurse practitioner. I don't care how hard line you are on doctor's rights and doctors maintaining control. And so in those types of situations, I think we really need to revisit what the supervision requirements are on nurse practitioners and if that's really the way that we want to go. And do we really see the quality outcomes come out of those supervision programs that would justify their continued existence when, again, you're facing a massive lack of access crisis nationally? It's just another example of what I would consider the sort of like everything becomes this binary. There is middle ground and it sounds like in some of these, you know, a lot of good arguments are spoiled by some fool who knows what he's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it just sounds like we need to actually look at the data and set our ideologies aside and just figure out what's right for the patients here. Right. Well, you know, I've always wondered what about something like a policy where if there's no primary care physician practicing within 30 miles, nurse practitioners can practice within that radius independently, or maybe it could go off the hipsas. You know, if it's a health provider shortage area designated by HRSA within those areas, the nurse practitioners can practice independently, things like that, because that would also help entice more nurse practitioners to return to rural communities. One thing that I thought was really interesting is I got the opportunity to tour a hospital called Seven Oaks in Winnipeg, Canada. One of their administrators was nice enough to show me around the facility. He made a comment that was really funny. He's like, we've only got one gerontologist at this hospital. I'm like, you have a gerontologist? (laughs) I don't think I've ever even seen one. But when we started talking about my community that I was working in at the time, population 5,000, obviously much smaller than the city of Winnipeg, which is a very urban area. I was like, yeah, we have five OBGYNs, obstetricians. And he's like, you have five OBGYNs? He's like, what in the world could they possibly be doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, we've got one for like the entire greater Winnipeg area. He's like, what do they do? I'm like, deliver babies and stuff, I guess. And he's like, why would you not have a nurse practitioner do that? He's like, they do all of them here. He's like, the only people that the obstetricians see here are the highest risk. And I'm like, Oh, well, that's something to think about. This reminds me of the NUCA system of care. And I interviewed Dr. Doug Eby on the show a bit ago. So I I definitely, if you haven't listened to that, would recommend going back in and listening to it. But they also serve very rural communities. I mean, ones that you have to take a prop plane to get to. The way that they do it is with primary care teams and a lot of telehealth. 
telehealth. Because if you have a primary care team and you have the primary care physicians that are interfacing with these specialists and ensuring that they're called in at the at the right time, then you can do a lot very efficiently and everyone gets to work at the, the top of their license. I'm assuming that some of the stuff that we've been talking about relative to nurse practitioners working at the top of their license could be folded into a primary care team like that in some fashion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, that's the top standard of care. We did something similar at Margaret Mary with the GROW program. We didn't really have access to child psychiatrists, but we had a need for intensive trauma services for adolescent mental health patients. What we ended up doing was putting the psychiatrist and the pediatrician together and have them work together on a multidisciplinary team and sort of offset one another. And that worked really well. So they were just simply working together and collaborating together or was it more official yep. than that? Yeah, they would collaborate together and they would have weekly multidisciplinary team meetings with the therapist, the three of them, and they would kind of all three together come up with treatment plans. Got it. And the three are were A pediatrician, a psychiatrist, and a therapist. All right. So let's talk about maternity okay. care in rural America, which is is becoming a huge issue. First of all, what's the issue? Let's start there. What's the problem? For many rural hospitals, again, and we said almost half of rural hospitals are in danger of closing. Maternity services are a losing prospect. The payer mix is really bad. The cost of malpractice insurance is really high. The cost of just having that service is really high. Most rural hospitals continue to do that service, A, because they have a mission to serve their community, but B, because when you deliver your baby at your hospital, you have a really good opportunity to engage them in the continuum of care for the rest of their lives, which is a, both good practice and good quality for the patient. But again, in an environment where half the rural hospitals are closing, their ability to maintain a losing service line is dramatically decreased regardless of the community need or if it's the right thing to do or not. And so a lot of rural OBs are closing. So you have women who are hours and hours away from the nearest hospital where they could actually deliver a baby. This is becoming a, a huge, huge crisis. One of the things that you said that I just want to emphasize is that a lot of hospitals, if you're in an urban setting, you know, it's it's like a loss leader. <laughs> you want people to deliver their babies in your care setting because then chances are they're going to stay there. It's basically the health facility for the rest of their lives. Right. So if you're in the only game in town, <laughs> yeah. anyway, you, you don't need to be doing that. Obviously, there's some really big downsides to being hours and hours and hours away from the place where you can get maternal care. Another huge issue is the lack of obstetricians in rural communities. You know, when you look at back in the day, the vast majority of care was being provided by a general practitioner who just went around with a little black bag and he saw everybody and that made a lot of sense. But the complexity of medical procedures has really changed since then. So back in the day, your little GP was providing oncology, women's services, cardiology, psychiatry, you name it, the general practitioner was doing it. But now we know a lot more about each and every one of those services. And so there's specialists who can do this. But as healthcare becomes more and more specialized, our ability to treat high-risk cases is better, but access gets worse because rural communities are, by definition, low volume and can't really attract and retain that kind of talent. That's a big problem. And, you know, obstetrics is really no different. So it's becoming an increasingly specialized service. So say you're an OBGYN who just graduated from residency today. For you to go out in rural communities, you're put in this catch-22 where these babies are so rude that they don't come during office hours. And so you have to be on call essentially 24-7 if 
you know, and if you're not, then there's no one to deliver the babies. But say during the day or whatever, you have just enough patience to keep you busy in the office during the day to give you a reason to be there and to keep up your license. But again, it's that call piece. So then you hire two obstetricians who now don't have enough patience between the two of them to keep their day practice full. But now at least it's a one and two call. So you can think about having a beer every other week and you can maybe have a vacation. But those that's just a very hard life that a lot of doctors who are just coming out of residencies. Additionally, now you also have the, you know, the concept of a laborist, which is, you know, an OBGYN who literally just delivers babies. They're really good at it because it's all they do. You know, they're a master of one trade instead of a jack of all trades. And they have a great quality of life because they work their 12 hour shift and they go home at the end of it and nobody calls them and they go, you know, wake up the next day, work their 12 hour shift. Again, that model is just untenable in rural communities where you might deliver 80 babies a year if you're lucky. They just sit around, twiddle their thumbs most shifts and they wouldn't see enough action to even keep their license. This is becoming a really heated topic too, as family practice physicians who deliver babies and do a great job are unfortunately being forced out of the delivery world by higher malpractice rates. A lot of insurance companies want the laborists delivering babies because, you know, if you've got a doctor who only delivers babies, then that's the best care for their patients and that they cover or their insured lives that they cover. And unfortunately, they don't realize the implications that that has on access. Because again, this goes back to, you know, the whole nurse practitioner debate, whatever you think of the quality of a family practice physician delivering versus a laborist delivering, whatever your personal opinions on that doesn't super matter because everyone would agree that either of those things is better than neither of those things. And right now, the, the dichotomy in rural community is neither of those things. This has led to a full-on systemic collapse of obstetric services across the country. And I don't think that it gets enough attention because we've sort of internalized this idea that rural America is dying off and that the rural population is decreasing every year. So I don't think they're looking at services that are disproportionately affected by younger you know, generations that are more likely to live in an urban setting, but it exists and it's creating a huge access and health disparities issue. It's like perfect being the enemy of the good. If it's a question of having nobody, unless you're driving hours because you've got that sort of lead time, <laughs> right? you're kind of left in a bit of a pickle. Again, when you don't have family practice delivering babies, they might also just elect to not do OBGYN services or women's health services at all, which means that the folks who live in that community don't have access. Because again, say you're a family practice physician who's going to go practice in a rural community, family practice being one of the few specialties that does disproportionately pick rural communities to practice in. For you to be trained in women's health, you would need to do additional training to learn how to do deliveries and to be really competent in that. And so, again, if you think that there's a chance you're not going to be allowed to do deliveries, why would you take all the extra work to train yourself up in women's care when you can, you know, use that time to prepare for something else? And so, like I said, it's even it's not even just deliveries. It's prenatal care, period, across the board that unfortunately women's health providers are being shoved out. So just last thing, let's talk about mental health for a moment. If, if there's not adequate primary care or patients don't realize that PCPs can be their door into effective mental health. Patients wind up beginning their mental health journey or their care journey in in these freestanding ERs, for example. I think that we are seeing a dramatic increase in diseases of despair across the board in rural communities. I saw a huge uptick 
in this myself after the last election. Without getting too political, I think that rural communities have been on the decline for 60 plus years. Rural communities are trying very hard to hang on to what they have. And I think that for the first time, we saw some attention swing back towards the rural communities. And it was this renewed sense of hope and then this sort of hard shift back to normalcy. And normalcy was where rural health was dying. I think that that scares a lot of people who are very culturally attached to their communities. If you live in this little tiny community and you don't see a future there with your job, these things can really exasperate mental health. And there's no access. You know, obviously the pandemic dramatically accelerated mental health issues and there's still no access. The economy really took a a hard hit over the past four years in rural communities and still no access. Also, you're disproportionately more likely to have Medicaid. You can't get providers who can take more than a certain amount, even if they're not for profit. Or you have folks who are farmers or maybe they own an excavating company. They don't have insurance. They can't afford insurance. They make too much to qualify for the ACA plans. They don't make enough to buy a commercial plan outright or to go to the marketplace, which again, the marketplace is disproportionately expensive in rural communities because almost all of the insurers pulled out of the rural marketplace because there wasn't a varied enough pool or a large enough risk pool for the insurance company to you know, make a profit off of it. So when you look at the one market plan that's available in a rural community, you probably can't afford it. (laughs) And with no insurance, of course, comes no access. Obviously, diseases of despair, behavioral health, people are starting to realize how much that actually affects physical health, that they're not two separate things, that it's just kind of like health. Another thing that has been mentioned along these lines is the evil cycle that gets precipitated because if you have parents suffering from a disease of despair, you tend to have child abuse, which just perpetuates an an evil cycle, which I know is something that you have studied and seen. This goes back to the adverse childhood event study, which I think we do not talk enough about in the healthcare administration world. I think we talk about a lot of it clinically. I feel like a lot of clinical providers are acutely aware of the effects that child abuse has on increasing risk of suicide, substance use disorders, obesity, diseases related to obesity, all these things. Providers see that. You know, if you've got somebody who's just really lived a rough life, chances are they're overweight. They may or may not have something like two diabetes or hypertension. They probably have depression, anxiety, or both, as well as maybe something like PTSD, like you're seeing, you know, them have issues chronically with employment and their ability to take negative criticism or challenge themselves. You know, and that's not everyone. Like, that's not stereotyping. I'm just saying that statistically, people who suffer from those things have disproportionately experienced childhood trauma, and that's why they're having trouble coping. But from the healthcare administration side, we know that somebody who has an elevated A score or adverse childhood event score has a 20-year shorter life expectancy on the whole. Their ability to meet population health value-based markers non-existent. You know, if you have a primary care provider who's just trying to treat depression in an office-based setting, and this is somebody who has complex PTSD, that ain't going to work. This is going to be something that requires intensive treatment. And so I think that this is the single biggest challenge to moving to a model that really incentivizes keeping people healthy versus doing procedures in the hospital, because these people are going to have significant and very specific barriers to achieving physical health because of their lack of access to mental health. 
You had said that population health models, having a reimbursement system that's based on achieving better pop health outcomes is, is going to be essential. And this is probably just another proof point to that being the case. Yep. If you had some advice for for Medicaid and, and how that is, is structured, especially given your experience in rural America and also with mental health and the challenges there, what do you suggest? The easiest low-hanging fruit, first of all, is having national Medicaid and have that put under the same hood as Medicare. Having Medicaid vastly different from state to state, both drives providers, administrators, everybody insane. You can implement a program that works really, really great at targeting high-risk people and therefore Medicaid enrollees in the state of Indiana and have it completely flop in California just because of the way that the programs are administrated. So, I mean, we can't even talk about, you know, best practices in a way that really makes sense beyond the most very basic level, that drives me insane. Like there needs to be one rate all over the country, needs to be one set of rules all over the country. And it also reduces a lot of redundancy within the system. So I think that that's just number one. But I think that additionally, looking at value-based models for Medicaid, and some states have done this with great success, I haven't looked into it personally, but I hear rave reviews about the the Pennsylvania model and what they did with value-based care in that state. So I know that some states have really, really done this well, but the vast majority of states are kind of pretending like Medicaid doesn't exist and hoping it goes away. And especially in light of the really politicized nature of Medicaid in states that did not expand with the Accountable Care Act. But the truth is, is that we're, we're getting to a place where if we don't get behind subsidizing health, we won't be able to pay what happens next. And I can't think of any, any demographic where that's more important than high-risk Medicaid patients who oftentimes don't have the resources that they need to maintain their personal health. We've just got to completely look at the way that we do this Medicaid thing. It's untenable in every way imaginable. The idea of paying for value seems to be definitely at least one leg in the stool that's going to transform healthcare here. Right. And particularly important for rural America that has all of these additional challenges. It's certainly a, a spider web of complexity. Yep. Nikki, if people are interested in learning more about the work that you're doing, where would you direct them for more information? You can email me at king.nikki2014 at gmail.com. You can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm readily available on most social media platforms. Follow me on Twitter, whatever you're into. Nikki King, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.